I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, my guest today is the remarkably talented writer, Malcolm Gladwell. He is the author of six New York Times bestsellers, including Talking to Strangers, David and Goliath, Outliers, Blink, and The Tipping Point. He is the co-founder and president of Pushkin Industries, an audiobook and podcast production company that produces the podcasts Revisionist History, Broken Record, a music interview show, and Solvable, in which Gladwell interviews innovative thinkers, with solutions to some of the world's biggest problems. He's here to talk about his new book, The Bomber Mafia, A Dream, A Temptation, and The Longest Night of the Second World War. Malcolm Gladwell is one of those people who just has captured the American spirit as a minor author by his standards. I look on his work as just a remarkable achievement. I'm amazed at the tipping point, how little things can make a big difference back in the year 2000, which really became an amazingly talked about book that I think really gave a lot of people some new insights. And then he came back with Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking in 2005, which again permeated the culture. Then he wrote Outliers, The Story of Success in 2008. And then What the Dog Saw and Other Adventures in 2009. And finally, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants in 2013. And now he's back with a really interesting book on the Bomber Mafia. 
a dream, a temptation, and the longest night of the Second World War. And I've had a long interest personally as a historian in World War II and in the bomber mafia and the gap between what they believed was possible and what was possible. But before we get into your new book, The Bomber Mafia, I'm just curious, how did you get into this? Your mother was a psychotherapist. Your father's a mathematician. That's certainly a wide range of experiences in one household. But how did all that lead you to your first book? My first book? Well, I was a science reporter at the Washington Post. I didn't study sciences in college. It was all something I was discovering for the first time. And the tipping point, my first book really came about because I was one of the Washington Post reporters who was covering the AIDS epidemic. And I was spending all this time with epidemiologists. And I became fascinated with how epidemics work. And, you know, of course, now we've all become amateur epidemiologists over the last year and a half. But this was way back in the 80s. And I'd never encountered this before, just this idea that you could have these unbelievably disruptive phenomenon that can sweep across a society. And the phenomenon of these kinds of incredibly rapid, fast-growing epidemics, these things don't proceed carefully and slowly. They explode. And the human brain is not really well set up to deal with explosions. And that was really what got me interested in that subject. So I'm curious, because you open a different door that I simply have to go through for a minute. Given your background, given the work you did on HIV, which I remember I was a very junior congressman at the time, and I remember working both with the Center for Disease Control, which I represented in Congress, and helped with funding on a regular basis, and also talking with people at NIH, including Dr. Fauci. How do you respond to and interpret the last year as it relates to COVID, given the depth of experience you had in covering an earlier and very different kind of epidemic? Well, you know, I think that we forgot some of the more important lessons from HIV. We would have been, this is going to seem like a curious thing to say, but had less time separated those two epidemics, I feel like we would have been better off. And you know this is true, and we're shortly going to talk about wars and armies. This is even more the case in the military, that the experience of having gone through a particular kind of conflict is so powerful and illuminating on the judgment of the participants that it shapes the way they deal with all other future crises in their career. And that's why when you lose a cohort of people who have fought a war, you start over. This is what's so frustrating about human beings. You know, a certain generation dies off, retires, what have you, and the people who come behind them don't sit down and study the lessons of their forebears. They start over, and they make the same mistakes, and it's maddening. I feel like if there had been 10 years between the First World War and the Second World War, would the Second World War have been different? Maybe. Certainly, if there had been less time between Korea and Vietnam, maybe we would have been better off. I mean, I think you could sort of play this game endlessly. The game I played with COVID was, I think, the great lesson of HIV in the end is that epidemics are social phenomenon, that you don't have to understand the biology of the virus in order to thwart the virus. You have to understand people, how to talk to them, how to communicate with them, 
how to get them aboard on any kind of crusade. And I feel like we didn't do a very good job of that. We got sort of caught up in all kinds of issues that were secondary to getting the population behind a coherent, persuasive strategy. I almost feel that sometimes the sheer volume of media makes it harder to understand rather than easier. And then you get into daily cycles of briefings that gradually make people numb and lead them to not know who to believe. But let me use that for a jumping off point about your book, The Bomber Mafia, because this fits perfectly and is one of the great examples, I think, of people who, in a sense, impose a particular model on reality. And in the case of World War II, the generals who were at the key places actually had the resources and the reach to do it. But it's certainly a very different topic than you had written on up till now. What led you to pick it? Well, I've always been a history buff, and I've always wanted to write a pure history book. But the problem with writing about history is that the competition's pretty ferocious. <laughs> There's almost no field of kind of modern American letters where there are more quality people operating in than history, right? I mean, I could name, you and I could do the same thing. We could sit down and come up with 10 names of truly A-plus historians who write fantastic popular history. That's super daunting. So I was like, you know, I don't think I can play that game. And then I wanted to write the Second World War for the reasons I talk about in the book, you know, for family reasons. My father was a kid in Kent in the beginning of the, during the Blitz, and he would sleep under his bed. His mom would tell him to sleep under his bed when the German bombers flew overhead every night on their way to flatten London. So it's like, I grew up on these stories and I always wanted to write about the Second World War. I always despair because I thought, surely every great story from the Second World War has been told. And then I finally thought I'd found one that hadn't been told for a general audience. I mean, obviously, serious historians know all about the Bomber Mafia, but I didn't think there'd been a popular book about them. And that's what, I was like, I may, I was like, Newt, I may never get another chance. <laughs> I was like, I better do this right now or someone's going to beat me to the punch. That's great. But, but as I understand it, though, you originally started out as an audio book. Yes. So this was a book really intended to be listened to because I wanted to tell the story about this renegade group of pilots at Maxwell Air Force Base in the 30s. And this vision they had of reforming war and how they brought that vision into the Second World War. And I quickly realized that the Air Force being the Air Force, they have perfect records. I mean, this is when you, it's so funny, whenever people like rag on the military or various parts of government as being, you know, inefficient or clueless or incompetent, I was like, actually, if you hang around the Air Force long enough, you come to the exact opposite conclusion. This is a group of people who know what they're doing. And they have astonishing archives on the Second World War. You can go to Maxwell Air Force Base into the library and they have mountains of audio tape, of oral histories, brilliantly done oral histories where they sit down with every key Air Force figure in the Second World War. They do it in the 50s or the 60s when these guys are still alive and looking back on their experience. And they basically debrief them for the benefit of the public. And I found this tape and I was like, you know, I can write about Curtis LeMay or I could just play you tape of Curtis LeMay. What would you rather hear? You know, and the voices, you cannot understand Curtis LeMay until you hear him. 
And you understand, oh, this is what he is. He's like a warrior, right? He is an uncompromising, unsentimental, brilliant, hard-nosed warrior. And you can hear it in his voice. And you can almost hear him when he's talking, take the cigar out of his mouth to answer the question. You know what I mean? When I realized there was all of this ability to bring the story to life, I said, I'm going to start by making the greatest audiobook I can, where I use all of this tape to create an experience. When I talk about the bombing raid on Schweinfurt, I want you to feel like you're there. And when I talk about the bombing raid on Tokyo in March of 45, I want you to feel like you are in one of those bombers, one of those super fortresses flying from Guam to Tokyo. So that was our intention. We would start by doing a different kind of audiobook, and then we'd spun off the print book from it. You know, I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. There are brilliant opportunities to bring modern history, at least, to life because we have so much of it on tape and we can actually let people hear from the original people. I've been going down to Maxwell for about 35 years. Oh, I didn't know that. And, and Yeah, I have been teaching several courses down there. Wait, what do you teach there? They have a course called the Joint War Fighting Course, and it's on how to think about theater command and basically involves two-star generals from all the different services and admirals. And at one point in that process, a very dear friend of mine, Chuck Boyd, who was a very long-time Vietnam prisoner of war and the only prisoner of war to come back and get four stars, an extraordinarily brilliant guy. And he was the head of the Air University, and he had Curtis LeMay coming down and arranged it so that I would be there teaching and then we would have dinner with LeMay. Oh, my goodness. You met LeMay. And we spent an entire evening, and it was just like this astonishing experience of a guy who was both very smart and very ruthless. Yeah. I asked him a couple of questions that triggered him, and it was amazing to watch him just go off. At one point, he'd sitting next to me at dinner, and he turned and began hitting me in the arm because <laughs> he was just so filled with energy. And he said, actually, that it was the experience of being at the tactical school mm -hmm. that taught him how to write an eight-paragraph field order. Yeah. And when he got to England, he said his greatest contribution to the war was teaching the staff of the Air Force in Europe, who had not gone to the school, how to write a competent order. Yeah. Because they were sending out these multi-page, hard-to-understand, convoluted things. And he would take them, and he'd rewrite them back into what was a standard frag order and send it back to him and say, is this what you meant to send me? And after about eight or nine weeks, they said, oh, yeah. And they began to learn how to do it. He then said he was in charge of the 17 unit. They were frankly not doing very well. And partly they weren't doing very well because they were bobbing and weaving to avoid the anti-aircraft fire. Yes. So they could not get lined up to drop the bombs accurately. And he called a meeting because he had remembered from his 1929 Ohio University ROTC manual, the likelihood of a 88 anti-aircraft shell and a plane being in the same space. And it turned out to be exactly the same likelihood whether you were going straight or you were bobbing and weaving. Mm -hmm. And so he called all of his senior commanders together and he said, we're going to fly straight. And they said, you can't fly straight. You know, he said, trust me, you're as likely to be shot down, you know, bobbing and weaving. And frankly, bobbing and weaving, you aren't hitting anything. 
Yeah. And they said, well, but we can't do this. He said, I'll tell you what. If you really don't want to do it, I'm going to ground the entire wing and save the taxpayers the aviation fuel. Because since we're not doing any good anyway, why waste the gasoline? And so they said, okay, all right. You left out the most important part of the story. And he said, and if you don't believe me, I'll show you how it's done. I'll lead the first attack. I was going to get to that because he said, I believe it enough, I'm going to lead the attack. And then he turned to me and he said, I was totally terrified when we took <laughs> off. And I said, God, I hope that manual was right. <laughs> but to be there in his presence, this is why what you're doing is so fascinating, because you're going to expose people in the audio version. You're going to expose them to the quality of the voice, the intensity of the communication. And a lot of these historic figures, they are different. You know, they're not just bigger versions of normal. Newt, my impression from researching and reporting this book Curtis Lemay was the greatest combat commander of the Second World War in any domain. Now, maybe I got so caught up in the Air Force in this that I'm being very, very partial to the Air Force. But it struck me that it is hard to find another single individual in the Second World War who contributed as much to particularly our tactical understanding of how to fight the enemy effectively. I mean, this is one guy. I mean, we just nibbling. The thing you just described is just one of a whole series of innovations that he made in how we should bomb more effectively. One guy made this insane contribution. Well, and, you know, it continues after the war because he's brought back to rebuild the Strategic Air Command at Omaha. And there's this great story where he arrives and the place is a dump and the morale is terrible and they don't have any money. This is in 1949 before the Korean War buildup. And so he announces that they've got this building that if it had been painted and cleaned up, would be a great gymnasium. But they don't have any money to hire painters and so forth. And so he finds a little bit of money for paint. And he sends out on a Wednesday or Thursday that this Saturday, the commanding general will be painting and would be glad to have anybody who'd like to come and volunteer. And he said, by the end of the day, it was all painted and they now had a gymnasium. And the degree to which that single act of leadership raised their morale was just astonishing. But you raise an interesting question. I think that what LeMay had was, first of all, he was amazingly smart. He had an ability in a way that very few people do to understand that the purpose was to win the war and it was going to involve a great deal of carnage and a great deal of violence and that you had to take people and train them because it wasn't a natural behavior. And then you had to methodically just solve problems and keep solving them and keep solving them, but always with this notion that this was about winning the war. In addition to LeMay, who we could probably do a six-hour podcast just talking about LeMay, but who else did you find fascinated you and surprised you? Well, Haywood Hansel. So the Bar Mafia is really a story of two men who come into conflict, Curtis LeMay and his great antagonist, Haywood Hansel. And Hansel is the idealistic version of LeMay. He is the dreamer, the romantic. He's the one whose favorite book is Don Quixote. And he is besotted with this idea that war can be reformed and it is possible to fight a war with a minimum of casualties on both sides. And he falls in love with a set of technologies that he thinks can 
move war from the 19th century and fully into the 20th century. And as you know, he turns out to be not wrong, but premature. He's imagining if Haywood Hansel would be alive today, he would be quite comfortable with the way the Air Force does its operations. He's just 75 years early <laughs> in his vision. But I love the contrast. This is why I wanted to write the book. The contrast, you have these two brilliant generals who could not be more different, who are, you know, at one end of the spectrum, you have the ruthless, unsentimental LeMay. At the other end, you have this dreamer. And I think you need them both in an effective military. I'm glad we had dreamers, even if the dreamer's dream didn't turn out to be practical during the Second World War. The thing about Haywood Hansel was he and his cohorts down at Maxwell really were possessed with a moral urgency. They did not want a replay of the First World War. They thought that if they could do one thing for humanity, it would be to figure out a way not to have a recurrence of that level of carnage. And they, I think, established a kind of philosophical and ethical tradition within the Air Force that persists to this day. I spent some time in this book talking to current Air Force leadership. They are completely at home speaking a kind of moral language about their obligations. It's not foreign to them. They've read their history. They know that in the back of their mind has to be the consideration that war should be fought as cleanly as possible. And they get that from people like Haywood Hansel back in the day. And I also have a kind of soft spot for romantics. I mean, I like when people have grand dreams, even if those dreams come to naught. I think that really good institutions make room for those people. The one thing more than anything that I came away from doing this book was I came away with a level of respect for the Air Force that I had not had before. I didn't know anything about the Air Force before. And I came away thinking, you know what, this is a truly great American institution. And it's a great American institution because it had room for dreamers and also warriors, bloodthirsty warriors. And you need both. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife... It's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things I noticed that you did is that you went to the center of the Tokyo raids and war damage, which is a real research center for that period of time. What did you learn from that? Well, that's actually how I began the book. I was in Tokyo and happened to go to this little tiny museum on a side street in East Tokyo. It's a private museum. It's not even a government museum. It is the only permanent memorial installation devoted to the firebombing of Tokyo in March of 1945 by the 21st Bomber Command. And it is as plain, I don't know if you've ever been there, Newt, it is as plain and ordinary and prosaic a museum as you will ever see. It looks like, I say in the book, it looks like a dentist's office. They probably did the whole thing for a couple thousand dollars. But it is the most moving, you know, I've done episodes of my podcast on memorials and what I think are wrong with them. I'm not happy about the 9-11 memorial, for example. I think that was an exercise in excess. This one, because it was so simple and straightforward and prosaic, it was extraordinarily moving. And it's what sort of compelled me to ask the question, how did it come to pass that the U.S. Air Force launched in March of 45, one of the deadliest nights of bombing in human history? 
And I also liked the idea that, and this is something I didn't put in the book, but I should have. So this is a museum that is built by a Japanese historian to commemorate what happened that night. And the first 90% of the museum is about what the Americans did to Tokyo in March of 45. The last 10% is how the Japanese used the same incendiary bombing tactics against China at the beginning of the war. So it is not a one-sided ideological exercise. He was making a point about how wars sometimes end up being fought. The intention of the museum was that we not forget this fact, but it did not have an ideological agenda. The point of the museum was to make you reflect on what happened, educate you, and that is so close to my ideal version of what history ought to do. And that's exactly what I did, right? Came away from that experience determined to shed light on whatever led up to March 9th, 1945. What is the 10-year history that led us to one of the most fateful decisions in the Second World War? Yeah, I think most people don't realize that the firebombings actually killed far more people than the two nuclear weapons. It was also true in Europe. I mean, the great bombing of Hamburg, for example, was just extraordinary. And it's interesting. I had always thought that our aggressiveness about bombing cities was in part a response to Pearl Harbor. But George Marshall, the chief of staff of the Army, in the summer of 1941, while we're still at peace, gives a speech and says, the Japanese will not dare to attack us because their cities are wooden and they will burn. And it just struck me as kind of amazing that Marshall would already have understood the rhythm of what our counterattack would be like. And then, of course, with LeMay, you get somebody who is just relentless in carrying it out. Yeah. An amazing bombing campaign in the winter of 45. This, this observation had been made on a regular basis by the late 1930s, that there was a qualitative difference between European and Japanese cities. You just walk around Berlin, and you compare that to walking around Tokyo, and you see Berlin is really hard to burn down. It's too much brick and stone, too many fire breaks, too many parks, really wide streets, none of that. You can certainly drop incendiaries on Berlin and they'll do a little damage, but we did calculations in the 30s about how effective would incendiaries be in a, on a typical European city, and the answer is not that effective. And then they went and did exactly the same studies on Japanese cities, and you know they are constructed completely opposite. They are, the houses are close together, the streets are narrow, the houses are made out of wood and straw and tar paper. I mean, Marshall's absolutely right. These things were tinderboxes. I have a chapter in Barra Mafia on the creation of napalm. Napalm is created in the Second World War for the explicit intention of bombing Japanese cities because they were so flammable. I mean, it was a U.S. Army project to find the most effective incendiary we could. And it comes out of Harvard University, a fact that Harvard is not very eager to share with the world. You would think, Newt, sorry, forgive me for this tangent. If you go to Harvard University, you can go, and I did this, to the, it's still there, the chemistry lab where napalm was invented, right? You would think, wouldn't you, that there would be a little plaque that said, in 1941, in this exact chemistry laboratory, one of the most lethal weapons of the 20th century was invented. And 
Then they can go on all they want about whether that's a good or a bad thing. I don't really care. What I care about is, look, if you make a list of the 10 most consequential inventions to come out of Harvard University, I'm sorry, I've looked at that list. Napalm's number one. There's no doubt about it. There is nothing that has been invented at Harvard University that has had a greater impact on the world than Napalm that came out in 1941. You cannot find on the entire campus a single mention of that fact. Where was the first test of napalm? It was on the Harvard University soccer field, for goodness sake. The whole thing was cooked up in Cambridge. Will they tell us about this? No, why not? Will you join me in this crusade, Newt? They've got to acknowledge. They're so busy acknowledging all kinds of other things, they can't get around to the big one. I suspect, given the current psychology and culture of Harvard, that they would have a sense of guilt and humiliation. Well, acknowledge that. This is what drives me crazy, by the way, about this moment. So acknowledge it. Just say, this was invented here, and say, and we feel guilty about it. Like, that's fine. We're at this point where we feel like the only time we can acknowledge our history is when we're proud of it. Why? It's fine. We're intelligent human beings. Make the plaque 2,000 words long and tell me the whole story. I did not know that story, so I'm still sitting here absorbing it, and I can't wait to... I see some friends from Harvard. It's really good. And in fact, we have somebody who is working with us right now who is going to Harvard this fall. Maybe we'll make her assignment to sneak yes. into that lab and post something up there, in which case we're going to put your name on it. <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell wanted you to know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's the sort of thing which could lead them to either tear the building down as well as blow up the soccer field. And... Deny that it ever happened. But no, but here's the thing, Newt. This is exactly the kind of moment when history is really, really important. And that is an opportunity to tell people in a really interesting way about a complicated moment in our country's history. And if you're a university, that's your job, right? That's your job. Well, you would think. We live in an era when it may not be their job, yeah. uh, at least as they define themselves. But, you know... You raise a different, really important point, because you can go across the street to the Lincoln Labs at MIT. The number of things we invented in that small area that had a direct impact, including proximity fuses, things that really decisively affected the war, and a whole range of things. It's kind of astonishing. And, you know, most Americans have never heard of those kind of contributions. But in some ways, World War II was the first time that science really was integral to the whole war at every level. And that without the science and engineering, you'd maybe have been pushed back into World War I. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. 
Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me ask you a moral question for a second. I'm a big fan of LeMay and I'm a big fan of the U.S. Air Force. But in the end, the ability to deliver violence from the air, if you count civilian lives as well as military lives, it did not exactly end up saving lives. It just transferred the point at which they died. And so you ended up with these extraordinary bomber campaigns, we and the British against the Germans and then us against the Japanese. And of course, as you pointed out, you'd also had the Germans and the Italians in Spain. You'd had the Japanese in China. But air power in that sense, it seems to me, didn't in fact dramatically improve things until they got genuine precision capabilities, which really only occurs towards the very end of the Vietnam War. Because you report accurately that we had just terrible 
levels of accuracy in World War II. I mean, the degree to which these precision bombers weren't very precise is astonishing. Yeah. But by the time we get to the Iraq campaigns, the science has caught up with the requirements. And one B-2 today is more effective than an entire wing of B-17s. Yeah. Because it can deliver such extraordinarily precise weapons. And in that sense, it may save lives over the long run. But in a way, the science and the technology finally caught up with the dreams of the people in the 1930s and the dreams that Duhay had in writing about the potential of the bomber to save lives by ending the kind of war we'd fought in World War I. I'm curious about your take on it. Do you think that precision bombing in the genuine sense of truly being precise will in fact leverage violence more efficiently and more humanely in that fewer civilians will die of collateral damage? Or do you think it'll just extend the capacity of people to endure until they're defeated beyond the ability to resist? Yeah. I mean, that is the million-dollar question. I think I'm an optimist on this. I think that we're better off on balance, that precision allows us and I say that only because when I look at the Second World War and I see the extent of civilian losses in bombing campaigns is in retrospect staggering. I mean, probably close to a million Japanese civilians in summer of 45. The number of Germans killed in Allied bombing campaigns, particularly the British. I did not come away from this book with a renewed appreciation for British bombing tactics. At the end of the book, I talked to this historian at the Army War College, and she was saying that, you know, you have an obligation as a military commander to resort to extreme force or violence only after all other avenues are exhausted, only when you have no other choice. What she said, what she says, I always teach my students, the Army officers of tomorrow, she says, you have an obligation to work through all of your more ethically acceptable alternatives first. So she's not saying it is wrong to do as LeMay did over Japan. What she's saying is it's wrong to do that without consideration of other options first. And I thought that was extremely wise. So what I would say is the new era of precision bombing that we have today allows us to do is to pursue more alternative options before we take the big step. That I like. I think the more tools we can give military leadership, the more capable they will be of fighting a more acceptable kind of war. I mean, I don't think there's any such thing as an acceptable war, but a more acceptable kind of war. And like I said, when I met with Air Force leadership, the thing that really struck me was how these people are intellectually serious people. Today, when you have some trigger-happy warrior at the helm of military service is long, 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 long over. They are fully aware of what they can and should not do. So I found the process of getting involved in writing this book to be tremendously reassuring about military power in the 21st century. You know, I want to take you back to a passing comment you made that you weren't exactly enthusiastic about the Royal Air Force's bomber campaign. I want to ask you two sort of technical questions. One, to what extent do you think the fact that we had the Norden bomb site so we at least had some hope of hitting targets, change our attitude towards the campaign where the British did not have any device like that 
and literally they went to bombing whole cities because they couldn't hit anything. I mean, if they're going to go do it, they had to go do it almost on a city-killing basis because they couldn't guarantee killing a factory. Yeah. I think it made a little bit of a difference in the sort of initial sort of motivations to do bombing. My real issue with Bomber Harris, the head of the British Bomber Command, was it's a point that Ira Aker, who was the head of the Army Air Corps' 8th Air Force in Europe, made to Bomber Harris, which was the theory under which the British area bombing was operating was false. The idea that the British had was that if I bomb my enemy's civilian population in sufficient numbers, their morale will crack and I'll win the war that way. Nobody will crawl out of their homes. They'll sue for peace. Well, the Germans tried that very strategy during the Blitz, right? They bombed the bejesus out of London on the expectation that Londoners would panic and the British would give up. Is that what happened? No, the exact opposite happened. The English shrugged it off, went about their business and came back stronger than ever. So Bomber Harris has empirical evidence in his own backyard of the futility of morale bombing. It didn't work on them. So Ira Aker turns to him at one point and says, you know, why are you pursuing a strategy against the Germans that did not work against you? And Bomber Harris's response is, well, the British are different. Dude, I'm sorry, that's nonsense. Bomber Harris is, I call him a psychopath in the book, and I think that is a considered opinion. He's a psychopath. If he had looked at the evidence, he would have realized. And by the way, you know this. The bombing survey done after the war by the Air Force confirms in large part the futility of British morale bombing during the Second World War. It didn't work. It did not cause German morale to crumble. We squandered countless lives, countless planes, wasted countless resources in pursuit of a murderous policy over Germany that had no real impact on the outcome of the war. There's some really wonderful stuff by some British military strategists after the war, including Blackett, who won the Nobel Prize, a physicist who served in the war office, who made a calculation about how much earlier the Second World War would have ended if the RAF had not squandered so many resources in these fruitless bombing campaigns. That I found really persuasive. I think the military leadership in the US Army Air Corps was far superior to that of the RAF. Harris doesn't belong on the same page as Curtis LeMay. Like I said, did not come away impressed by it. And I'm English. I was born in England. These are my people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're not going to hold you to that. You're allowed to render independent judgment, whatever your nationality. Let me ask, if you don't mind, because you're so interesting and so insightful, what do you have coming up next? My next book is also going to be an audiobook first. I want to do something on policing, and I want to do something on the LAPD, because I want to understand the LAPD was the great kind of shining example of a modern American police department. And they got some things very right and some things very wrong. And I want to understand that process. And I think it would be really instructive because right now, you know, obviously that topic is in the air. We think we need to do something to reform the way policing happens in this country. So I thought, let's do a kind of case study of the most storied of all American police departments and try and answer that question. If you make a list of the 10 greatest police chiefs in America in the 20th century, three of them are LAPD police chiefs. These guys were the white knights of American policing for 
75 years until Watts and then Rodney King complicates their heritage. So I'm now doing the same thing I did with Bar Mafia. I'm sort of digging through the archives and trying to bring these men to life. And they are a fascinating group of men. I'm fascinated with the remarkable achievements in New York City, where you can almost draw a line in the day that Giuliani walks in. The system shifts, and we're now shifting back to a pre-Giuliani model, and they've doubled the murder rate in the last year. And it's kind of like your point earlier about systems that don't want to learn. You have a culture that says, yeah, that's factually true, but irrelevant. Yeah. Because it doesn't meet our current needs. You know, the last year is tricky because of COVID. And we see a lot of these trends across the country. It's really hard to tease out what's going on here. You know, in my last book, Talking to Strangers, I spent a lot of time talking about policing. I got optimistic, not pessimistic. There is some really sophisticated currents in criminology right now about how to build better police departments, do more effective policing. But you know this, there's always a gap between the innovation and its implementation. And I think we maybe are just in one of those gaps, but we're getting across the board. We have gotten a lot smarter in how we do this. And also, you know, we started this conversation talking about you have a problem when there's too big of a gap between crises, right? There's not a big gap between crises. Bill Bratton, probably the greatest police chief of the last 50 years in this country, who did New York and then did LA, really brought the LAPD back to life. Bratton's still around. You know, when the Brits had that crime problem a couple years ago, they tried to hire Bratton, which I thought was fantastic. So it's like, we have the old heads. You know, you can go and talk to Bill Bratton. He'll tell you how it's done. So I'm optimistic. You know, it's been a very, very difficult last 18 months. I think we can build this back up. I'm a huge fan of Bratton. And, and frankly, I agree with you. He's probably the greatest police chief of the last half century. When I look at it, it's very similar to the dynamic I was describing in the Bomber Mafia, which is you really get an appreciation for how one very effective individual can have a hugely disproportionate effect on their worlds. You know, if you sub out Curtis LeMay with a just a kind of ordinary average commander, who knows what the last 12 months of the Second World War looked like? The war could have gone into 1947. I don't know. I mean, he had such a profound effect on the European bombing campaign. Who knows how much longer that would have happened? Same thing with Bratton. You sub out Bratton. You're absolutely right. If instead of Bratton taking over the NYPD in that crucial period in the 90s, you get just an ordinary business as usual guy, New York City is not just slightly different. It's unrecognizable today. Unrecognizable. And, you know, you look at these things and you say, man, we get lucky every now and again which makes me really nervous because I think <laughs> it's like, whoa, I was living in New York when Bratton was here. I was like, man, did we dodge a bullet? I mean, literally dodge a bullet if we hadn't gotten this guy. Same thing with LeMay in the Second World War. So, Well, look, I want you to know that I hope you'll come back with your new book and we'll talk about policing. This has been a joy for me. You're just a great guest and I love your enthusiasm and your energy as well as your knowledge. And I want to assure you that we're going to promote the Bomber Mafia. But I want to thank you for taking the time. This has been just a great conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you to my guest, Malcolm Gladwell. You can find a link to his new book, The Bomber Mafia, 
a dream, a temptation, and the longest night of the Second World War on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.